Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with mo modern days unipolarity is precisely like that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the U.S. I'm Andrew Collingwood. I write for Bornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics. Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management. Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once-a-century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending. Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade, and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's longtime partner, is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift. We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century. This is Multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, commercial property is looking increasingly uncommercial. As businesses bail out of downtown post-COVID, it's threatening to create a downward spiral that drags the banks with it. But will the banks then drag entire cities down with them? America has spent decades taking out Europe's trash, but if there were a war in Taiwan, a new survey suggests there's almost no European appetite to back them up. So why don't young Belgians want to die to prevent two ethnically identical countries merging some 6,000 miles away? And finally, diplomatic ties with Iran, an accord with Israel. Saudi Arabia has been busy making friends, and like any suddenly popular kid, they're ditching their old mates. Is the kingdom finally taking a step back from its pals in Washington? But first... Hot desk cools. Yeah, so we've covered some stuff about property on the show before. I think we're already pretty much on record raising concerns about things happening in the property market. I think property market generally due to rising interest rates, but the first shoe to drop looks like it's going to be commercial property. The main reason for this, we can go into a little bit more in detail shortly, but the main reason is the commercial property is particularly vulnerable because of the work from home phenomenon. And while work from home hasn't given the work from home bulls who thought that we'd all be at home all the time, they haven't won the debate. It's created a hybrid work structure where most people are spending two days a week at home, um, which seems to be viable potentially long term. It's been a few years now, so it seems reasonable to think that that's kind of shuffled its way out. So obviously, with less people, with less bodies on board the ship, the ship doesn't need to be as large. And so offices uh, uh, don't need to be as large. You don't need as many desks there. If, you know, whatever, 20 to 40% of your employees aren't there at any one time. The recent news has been that banks have started to try and offload some of their property debt, um, some of them even uh, taking a loss on it. So PacWest last month sold $2.6 billion of construction loans at a loss. 
The Financial Times is reporting at the moment that HSBC, the US branch, is in the process of selling hundreds of millions of uh, dollars of commercial real estate loans, probably at a discount. It says potentially at a discount, but probably at this stage at a discount. So what we're seeing in the commercial real estate market, uh, in the commercial real estate lending market, is a classic game of hot potato. These loans are becoming increasingly unattractive to hold. And so everybody holding them is looking at the other guy and saying, will you take them? The typical way that begins is how it started now, that at, at first a few people managed to convince the other guy to buy the loans, but you know, do it at a discount, but but actually buy it itself. So in that circumstance, the bonds are trading below their stated market value, but the the liquidity remains in the market. You can still offload these things. The products are not perfectly liquid, but somewhat liquid, even though you have to take a take a uh, hit on them. But what happens with these games of hot potato is that they tend to focus attention on the sector. And so I'd expect now, or I don't really expect, you can follow it in the in the press and on Twitter, that more and more people in finance are talking about what we were talking about a few weeks ago, which is this huge problem looming in the commercial real estate market. And so the more attention is paid to that, the less people are going to want to buy the, the debt, even at a discount. So the hot potato gets ever hotter. And at a certain point, if this goes the way it looks like it's going to go, the market for this debt will seize up. Uh, the debt will become completely illiquid. No one will want to buy it because the risks of buying it will be will be so. I mean, they'll be perceived to be so bad, and uh, that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Liquidity in the market dries up, and there's a fairly decent chance at that stage that the lender, of last resort, will have to step in. That's the central bank, and they'll have to start buying up or, or providing liquidity provision to buy these loans. It looks like we're kind of heading down the commercial property toilet right now. It's happening in the U.S., I should say, mainly. But, you know, the U.S. is always the first one to call it on to these trends. But it'll spread. This problem is uh, is everywhere. Now, I think work from home has been more dramatic in the U.S. than it's been in Europe. But uh, I don't think it matters that much. I, I think once you, once you kind of take out, it's like a game of Jenga. And once you take out the bad brick and the whole thing starts to go over, I think it tends to go over pretty much all at once. I must admit that I had felt that the work-from-home phenomenon during the pandemic would have a an ongoing effect. I have a couple of friends who were in positions to make uh, decisions on such matters, and one told me uh, after the first kind of year of the pandemic toward Christmas of 2020, that he was going to get rid of his uh, premises as his office space uh, as soon as the lease came due. I know this is a very small scale. They only had like 40 or 50 desks in the place, but he said that as soon as the lease came due, he was going to cut that in half or you know maybe two-thirds and essentially have people working on a hybrid scheme and hot desking and you know find a nicer premises that was nicer to show clients around but was much smaller. And at that time, I started wondering why, uh, sorry, not why, but whether this was going to be something more widespread, and it apparently is. Uh, we're seeing all over now that a, a lot of staff who worked in offices prefer to work from home in general. There might be an efficiency fall-off there, a productivity fall-off from the staff's perspective, but there are also potentially cost savings for businesses. You know, if they... You know, have to, like my friend, instead of having 40 or 50 desks, if they only need 10, 
then they can save a lot of money. And it's not just things like the size of the actual premises that they have to have, but you know things like cleaning and maintenance and uh, all of these additional costs that such places might have. So I, I do think that this is going to have an ongoing effect, and I, I think we're starting to see the first signs of that now. I wonder, though, I, I, in addition to the work-from-home aspect to this, Philip, what effect do you think that the kind of the slow run on bank deposits is having on this? Now, obviously, we saw the failure of a few, not huge, but pretty decent-sized U.S. banks recently. The, the, the first one to go, of course, famously, and we covered this on Multipolarity, was Silicon Valley Bank. Famously, depositors withdrew. There was a genuine run on the bank. They withdrew their deposits. That forced uh, Silicon Valley Bank to try to liquidate their assets, i.e. the debt that they held. Uh, They had to do that at fire sale prices, and the whole thing eventually went under. I wonder, though, uh, since then, we've seen a continuation of, of deposits dropping across the banking sector. We've talked on multipolarity before how that's much easier to do now because of new technology or fintech, financial technology in in particular. You know, everybody has an app now on their phone where they can, you know, move their money around. Um, And we still indeed see this uh, drawdown of deposits. You know, bigger, bigger depositors might be putting it in the money market or might be putting it with kind of safer banks. As deposits draw down, are we seeing banks having to liquidate certain assets to pay back those deposits? And do you think that this is playing any role in commercial real estate? Because obviously one of the big assets that banks have is commercial real estate. They, they, they give loans for people to buy and build commercial real estate. Are we are they being forced to sell that to, 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 to pay back deposits? Or do you think this is purely a work-from-home phenomenon? Yeah, I, I definitely don't think it's purely a work from home phenomenon. Um, it's always pretty hard to disentangle cause when you know the whole banking system starts to teeter. <laughs> Not to be too apocalyptic, it's multiple causes all at once. First of all, the work from home thing just renders it the most vulnerable asset class. Right, this debt is the most vulnerable asset class due to an idiosyncratic feature built in. You know, in the in the two thousands dot com bubble, it was basically fake internet companies or you know borderline fake internet companies. There's always kind of one idiosyncratic component of the financial system that, when you see the credit cycle turn and you know potentially have some sort of a banking meltdown, that everyone will associate that. So there's a very good chance that the turning of this cycle will be associated with the great commercial real estate property meltdown attributed to the lockdown policies eventually etc cetera, etc cetera, which will be very interesting in a way because then there'll be an there'll be a direct intellectual link from here to eternity between the lockdown and a uh, a meltdown of the economy which is a, a very interesting thing to consider because um, some people uh, myself included who were very skeptical of the lockdowns and their economic effects, we're always a little bit concerned that there'd never be direct blame apportioned to the lockdown for the problems that we saw subsequently, because the causal effects usually are so, you know, they become more stretched and more vague as time marches on. But if this becomes, you know, known as the great commercial real estate meltdown, everyone will know it directly 
uh, was directly tied to the to the lockdown policies, which is interesting. But more broadly speaking, is there a mechanical link between bank deposit problems and the commercial loans? I mean, there may be, as you say, they may be trying to sell these to plug holes in the balance sheet elsewhere. But really, a lot of the losses that have been taken that resulted in the bank runs were, were on U.S. government bonds, which aren't marked to market in accounting terms. You don't have to register the losses effectively. So I think the more likely explanation is that the deposit run, which as far as I know is still ongoing, slow motion deposit run, combined with the high interest rates, combined with the compelling narrative, frankly, about work from home. It's a very compelling, easy to understand narrative. That's It's just kind of spooked the horses, you know? And once the horses are spooked in finance, they start turning over every rock, terrible mixed metaphor, but they start to turn over every rock <laughs> and they're looking for, for the next bogey, right? They're looking for the next skeleton. And um, I think this is probably the first one. That said, everybody, you know, the people I talk to now who are vaguely involved in property want to just pretend to themselves that this is contained to the commercial real estate market and that there's still this enormous demand for for housing real estate and stuff. I don't think that's true at all. I've, I've never seen a cycle where one commercial property goes down or a residential property goes down and the other one doesn't follow, follow in it. Because logically speaking, buildings are fungible. You can convert a commercial property into a residential property. It's not easy. I know people say it's really hard. There's zoning. Yeah, sure. I get it. I get it all. But property is property is property, right? Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if the, if the problems in the commercial real estate market start to highlight some issues in the residential real estate market. And the key issue there obviously is basic housing affordability at these uh, interest rates. The, the, the market probably needs to reprice significantly so that the average person looking for a mortgage for their first time property can afford the type of house that they need. I think what we're watching and covering on the show, which is quite exciting, I suppose, is each step in the emerging financial crisis, effectively. How is this going to work, in your opinion? I mean, the obvious way of thinking about this is that if suddenly the demand for real estate goes down, if everybody's trying to sell, 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 then certainly nobody's going to want to start building new real estate in that kind of market. And uh, certainly getting uh, credit and loans from the banks will be difficult to do so. And that'll mean that there are fewer architects and uh, engineers and uh, draftsmen are employed. But more importantly, it'll mean that there are fewer builders employed. There are fewer uh, cement companies and steel companies uh, producing materials for this sort of thing. They'll need fewer diggers, and that will affect various other parts of the economy. So there'll be a direct impact that will ripple and flow through the economy. As always happens when a single sector is hit, it has links and threads that connect it with other parts of the economy and if you kind of pull pull one of those threads the rest of the economy starts to jangle or perhaps in the worst scenario unravel but i suppose there are also more um things that might be more hidden in terms of effects for instance if the real estate sector goes kaplunk a lot of banks have significant exposure to that sector and a significant chunk of the balance sheet, the asset side of their balance sheet is going to take a hit. It's just going to be worth a lot less in that sort of environment. And of course, if that's worth a lot less, then they're going to have to start um, uh, rebalancing. They're going to have to give less credit, for example. And if there's 
less credit within the system as, as the banks kind of grind back to sustainability and profitability. If they're giving less credit in order to go through that process, then that means that there's just less money flowing around in the economy. People have less money to do things as well, right? So how, how do you think as our resident economist, this is going to, um, this sort of crisis, maybe not as going to, but could impact the economy? No, I think you've given a pretty good uh, overview of how the basic mechanism works. The real economy, you know, is only secondarily concerns itself with the financial economy. Really, the way that these things work are layoffs, and those layoffs are in the construction sector. Construction sector is a huge driver of cyclical growth. You can think of it as the sector that, dr- that drives growth at the margin. It's not that it drives most GDP growth, but it drives most GDP growth at the margin. And therefore, when it falls away, the economy tends to fall into recession. Remember, the economy to fall into recession doesn't have to lose 20% of economic activity. It only needs to you know, go minus one, minus two, minus 3% to GDP. The construction sector can, can give us that. It's not hard. In terms of the level of the wipeout, well, a very interesting study was uh, released recently called Work From Home and the Office Real Estate Apocalypse out of New York University and Columbia University. Um, And it basically did kind of fair value calculations on commercial real estate. Um, It was quite a clever paper. I I did a spread on it for the New York Post uh, last week, last Friday. Um, Paper was very well done. Um, And basically what they showed was their calculation estimated commercial real estate valuation would be wiped out by half a trillion dollars. So that's about, you know, 2.5% of GDP. That's those are huge losses, you know. And that's not to even begin to consider any knock-on effect in the residential market. The paper also found interestingly enough they calculated how much of an impact it would have on uh, New York tax revenue. Since we talked about specifically this issue on the podcast a few weeks ago, I do sort of wonder if the authors aren't listeners, but um, they they calculated and they did it properly, and they figured out that it that that six point five percent of um, of the revenue would be lost because states and cities require balanced budgets in the U.S. That would really hurt New York, and and so this is what they referred to. Again, I think we referred to it on the episode as well, as an urban doom loop. Basically, the issue here would be that that the collapse in the property sector gives rise to these forces that drive down the standard of living in the city. And that just increases the motivation to move out, which is what's causing the problem in the first place. And so they envisage kind of a complete de-urbanization. And I, I think that's exactly what's going to happen here. I, I think this, this work from home thing, combined with other trends that we're seeing in various cities, rising crime, um, you know, poor management of services and so on. I mean, just to take an example, TFL in London, which runs the public transport system, it's bankrupt. And it's bankrupt because, again, lockdown. Lockdown drove all this stuff. And so I think it'll just um, – it didn't drive the high crime rates, but, you know, that's a policing problem effectively. But piling all this on top of the deterioration of law and order in these cities, which was one of their main selling points in the 90s and early 2000s, I think it's going to absolutely wipe out the city. And we'll probably see another another wave of suburbanization take hold as we saw in the 1970s in America. I think that's perhaps 
one of the aspects that people don't think about this, it really could uh, trigger a significant drop in the attractiveness of cities through exactly the mechanism that you mentioned. People perhaps don't realize that when uh, the, the country goes in re- into recession, a government can take on extra debt. It can, it can sell sovereign bonds. And by doing that, maintain things like the social safety net, maintain infrastructure spending, essentially use fiscal spending, i.e. government spending, as a counter-cyclical measure to really soften the blow downward. Cities, on the other hand, don't necessarily have that option. In America, I think you mentioned, I didn't realize, but in America you mentioned that cities like New York have to run a balanced budget by law, but at least they can take on debt. London can't. London has no means, really, of selling municipal, you know, there are no London municipal bonds. There are no Manchester Muni bonds, right? It just doesn't exist. Now, London, like places like New York, get a large part of their revenue from, you know, rates, essentially commercial uh, taxes paid by property owners from the city. And if suddenly they see a meltdown of the or a sudden precipitous drop of the revenue that they get from that, where is the money going to come from to continue improving transportation, continue heavily subsidizing buses? Where is the money going to come from to keep the streets clean, to you know, employ additional policemen for public safety and it it would make London significantly less attractive if commercial real estate stopped providing so much money or real estate in general even and the central government the British national government refused to plug that gap which is entirely possible given conservatives are you know, in government nationally, and Sadiq Khan is a member of the Labour Party. And I'm sure you would get similar issues in the US as well, where the federal government would, um, you know, although, you know, Joe Biden and the, the, the governor of New York State and the mayor of New York, they're all kind of within the same party. It's a difficult sell nationally to start spending federal tax money on bailing out cities like New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco, right? So, you know, it's entirely possible that you get this kind of cycle where it becomes less attractive as a place to live. People therefore move out. There's therefore even less tax. There's even less money being spent. Businesses then start closing down because there's just less footfall. That leads to less tax money again. You really get a nasty, vicious cycle that could lead to uh, as you say, another wave of suburbanization. If you look back at videos and film and, and, and you look at documentaries of what things were like in New York in the 1970s, it was really dire. I think we've kind of forgotten about what an ugly place it could be in that period. Go watch Taxi Drive to get an impression of the way things were. Eurovision War Contest. So this poll came out, I think, last week from the ECFR on kind of general European attitudes toward China. I mean, the headline was basically they asked whether the their country should support the United States in the event of a conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan. And the headline answer to that is no. Only on average uh, across the countries polled, only 23% of uh, Europeans said that they should support the US and 62% said they should remain neutral. Just to give some sense of that, on on the high end, the two countries that most supported 
backing a kind of an interventionist approach were Poland, which isn't terribly surprising, Sweden, which I did find quite surprising. Sweden are clearly having a bit of a moment now that they're discussing NATO membership. But um, even in those two countries, Poland had 31% saying support the US and 49% saying remain neutral. And Sweden had 35% saying support the US and 49% saying remain neutral. Countries like Austria had 80% saying remain neutral, and the majority of the rest of the 20% were don't knows. So what you take from that basic poll is um, the Europeans aren't interested. If the Americans were thinking that they could model a conflict response with China in terms of selling the Europeans in the way that they, that they sold the Ukraine war, they're mistaken. And, you know, that should be kind of obvious. Ukraine is in Europe. I mean, it's on the periphery of Europe, but it's still in Europe. You know, people could be potentially feel a threat from Russia. Now, you know, I think there was some of that at the beginning of the Russian invasion. I always thought it was slightly overblown, but it was understandable in those kind of first uncertain weeks. I think most people now know that there's no threat from Russia to the rest of Europe. So, you know, you, you could sell it based on that. But selling a conflict on the other side of the world over an island that people don't really understand. In addition to that as well, I think the Taiwan thing is a much harder sell than Ukraine um, from a narrative point of view. And I think this even to Americans, although the anti-China sentiments that have been um stoked in america are quite quite um quite extreme at this stage but it's a hard sales point because ukraine was clearly a country right it was its own country and whatever you say about what was going on in the donbass you know since 2014 russia violated the territorial integrity of a country i mean that's undeniable and it's not hard to portray that as what it was it was an invasion Whereas Taiwan is officially part of China and everyone officially recognizes the one China policy and, you know, it it's not a country. So I just think I think this backs up something I think I've said on the on the podcast before. I wouldn't say that the conflict over Taiwan won't happen because it'll be difficult to sell to the population. I wouldn't like give that kind of causality there. But I will say if the conflict happens it is going to be be immediately more difficult to sell this to both the American population and to the European population, frankly. But these polls are definitely suggesting that that Europe want no part. And I'd say the decision makers in Europe, in these countries that are being polled, unless they're taking a very hardcore Atlanticist line, and I mean like on the more extreme of the Atlanticist line, they're probably paying attention to these polls and they're saying, maybe this isn't a winner. It's useful, I think, to kind of draw back a little bit here and look at the kind of broader picture. I think the one China policy is a very important thing to examine because, in fact, the one China policy was something that the US instituted in the 1970s. It basically recognizes that the Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan, that they're essentially two, uh, they're two parts of the same whole essentially. Um, the US does not recognize Taiwan as an independent nation. I think I'm right in saying that even Taiwan does not recognize Taiwan as an independent nation, right? The the official uh, name for Taiwan, what Taiwan calls Taiwan, is the Republic of China, right? So this one China policy has essentially kept the peace for a great many years. There were one or two 
issues, one or two bits where both sides rattled their saber. For instance, when uh, uh, Bill Clinton, during his presidency in the 90s, uh, sailed an aircraft carrier strike group through the um, the Taiwan Straits to signal his displeasure at Chinese actions in the Taiwan area. But in general, that's kept the peace. Since then, China's grown economically um, at an incredibly fast rate. The, the, the economic growth in China from the 1970s to the present has it's been enormous. It's unrecognizable. It's, it's many, many tens of times larger as an economy now than it was then. This has allowed it to build a significant military presence within the region. It's expanding economically through its its Belt and Road Initiative and thus diplomatically as well. And it's clear now that China is a geopolitical rival to the US. Now, in line with that, or or, or to um, perhaps counter that, if you like, the US is, is, is kept the one China policy in writing. It hasn't change that policy at all. But rhetorically, it is starting to move away from that. It's increasingly treating Taiwan as an independent state, which for Beijing is really an almost existential matter. You know, if Taiwan were to declare independence, for Beijing, it would be a casa spell. No no matter how you or I would view it, it would be almost like, uh, I don't know, the London declaring independence without any kind of um, constitutional um, uh, constitutional process in place. It, it would be a huge issue. And especially if, I don't know, the Russians and the Chinese were supporting London and garrisoned there. That's, that's the way that you would imagine it. So they're turning up the heat. And what this is doing is it's putting pressure on Europe. It's putting pressure on the European system because Europe is allied with the U.S. militarily through NATO. The U.S., I believe, is is the European Union's biggest export market. It's certainly Britain's biggest trading partner as well. Uh, So we have significant economic and uh, trading ties. We also have significant military ties. And, of course, diplomatically, we're very close as well. You know, Britain and the U.S., and to a slightly less degree, Europe tend to act in unison around the world there. Their interests are seen to coincide a fair amount, and they they view it as that kind of alliance as important. But the U.S. shift in rhetoric toward Taiwan and their inevitable pivot to Asia when it finally comes, Joe Biden has pivoted back towards Europe militarily, at least quite significantly. But it, I think everybody recognizes it's inevitable that uh, the U.S. will pivot towards Asia to. Um, look to challenge China's growth and expansion. That's putting pressure on Europe because really what happens in Taiwan doesn't matter to Europe. I, I hear people saying that what happens to Taiwan is really important for Britain, but I'm yet to see a, an, an actual physical mechanical process. Of course, if if there's a war between the US and, and China over Taiwan, a general war, then that'll have huge ramifications for Britain. But if if Taiwan just flipped into the Chinese camp from the Western camp, then there probably wouldn't be a mechanical effect on Britain unless Britain responded to that. So Europe is torn between these long-standing military, economic, and diplomatic relations and the fact that it really doesn't want to get involved with another crucial economic and trading partner, which is China. The EU has already taken significant economic damage by cutting ties with Moscow 
mainly through the energy channel. Energy has had an effect, as we talked about last week, on European industry and manufacturing, but through other channels as well. The last thing it needs is, is, is to take at least as big a hit by getting involved in a similar situation with China. So Europe is is being torn, and and, and as I've said and, and we've discussed in, in various weeks, Europe split in two camps. You've got the Atlanticists who really want to maintain strong ties with the US and want to support the US kind of crusade in the Western Pacific and Taiwan in particular. And then you've got the autonomists. The most prominent exemplar of this would be Emmanuel Macron, but also leaders like uh, Viktor Orban, uh, the prime minister of Hungary, who want more autonomy. They're the kind of autonomists. And this poll, really, what it shows is the European population is not Atlanticist insofar as it relates to supporting the US when it comes to China. It, it, it's really not. I mean, if you if you look at the average of, uh, of where European people are, um, actually, it was even worse than you mentioned because 50% of Europeans, so nearly half of Europeans view China as either an ally, okay, an ally or a necessary partner with which we must cooperate. So either an ally or a necessary partner with, with which we must cooperate. And almost 70% of people in the EU, so almost three quarters, think that the EU should either stay neutral or support China in a war between the US and China. So I think this is actually pretty bad news for the Atlanticists. Um, of course, things might change in the event of a war, you know, if, if China suddenly invaded Taiwan, a kind of news images of, you know, bombs and missiles striking Taipei and and, and, and deaths. and uh, I mean, that can shift public opinion quite rapidly. I, we saw that with the Balkan Wars in the 90s. We've seen it just recently uh, in Ukraine as well. And I, I guess it could with um, with China. But they're starting from a, a much, the Atlanticists are starting from a much lower base than they were with, with Ukraine. I think that's quite clear, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'd say on that um, just quickly that you're right, a war or some sort of like, you know, munitions being fired can swing public opinion quite fast. But if the underlying basis of that war isn't popular, public opinion will crumble very rapidly for it. And it will have long term consequences that you won't understand. So I think we've learned from Iraq, Afghanistan, we may even learn from Ukraine in the near future that those kind of, you know, thinking that you can just shepherd the population into war that's not popular on an underlying basis and doesn't have a good rational strategic reason that you can explain to your domestic population, not to other world leaders, can really damage the credibility of the people doing it. That's a political party. That's even a state sometimes. But with the China one, I think you've probably got one of the furthest down the line because you know something like Iraq, whereas the rationale for it was very poor, it was ultimately a weak country, and so it was very easy to defeat. With Russia, you've kind of got a strong country that's not easy to defeat, but the rationale is a little bit clearer if you're willing to believe certain premises. With China, at least in Europe's terms, the rationale is 
not clear remotely at all and it's an extremely powerful country and the downsides of of getting in conflict will it, with it will be enormous so i i'd say what the the danger there isn't so much that you couldn't shepherd a population in when the bombs start going off but the damage that you could do to your economy to your credibility and so on would be absolutely enormous and i think the cracks would show in that really fast like within months because of the economic ramifications i think that ties into the second poll that you talked about about the ally or the necessary partner that was a poll on the economy and trade and what i take from that just very briefly is that poll kind of shows that china are here to stay and i think that's just the most obvious commonsensical thing in the world we have two massive economies now the united states and china and no matter what some people think in dc about microchip bans or whatever china's here to stay um, we're going to have to figure out a way to live with them in the same world, right? We can't, like, cut the world in half and go our own ways. Bitterer Lake. We've had more leaks from the Discord server, the infamous Discord server, where which, you know, caused uh, great fury and consternation, including in the U.S. press about how um, how dangerous uh, for national security this was, but since then has seen an almost incessant uh, trickle of uh, leaks being reported in the New York Times and the Washington Post, the, the newspapers of record in the United States, the latest of which was that uh, last year, uh, during the, uh, shall we say, imbroglio between the uh, uh, United States and Biden administration in particular, and the government of Saudi Arabia, led, of course, by Mohammed um, bin Salman, who is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and also prime minister over oil price cuts, uh, sorry, oil supply cuts. Uh, listeners will remember, of course, that approaching the US midterm elections last year, uh, OPEC or OPEC Plus, which includes Russia, decided to cut oil production. That's usually a step to cut production, therefore reducing supply in the face of unchanged demand, therefore raising the price of oil. The Biden administration had hoped and had indeed diplomatically pressured the Saudis to not have any cuts and in fact perhaps even increase a little bit the supply of oil because they were concerned with oil prices and thus the price of gasoline at the gas station in America in the run-up to the midterms. Of course, the Saudis ignored that. They cut production anyway. They were accused of siding with Russia on this matter. They were accused of stabbing the, the Biden administration in the back. Now we have a leak where uh, Biden, if you remember in public, uh, vowed to impose consequences, I quote, consequences on Saudi Arabia for its decision to cut oil production. And this Discord leak reveals that Mohammed bin Salman, as I said, the Prime Minister and Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, in response to this, threatened to fundamentally alter the US-Saudi, Arabia, uh, US-Saudi relationship and, I quote, impose significant economic costs on the US if it indeed retaliated against those oil cuts, if if Biden followed through with his vow to impose consequence on Saudi Arabia. And I think that this, this leak really gives us just another data point 
to show just how far the U.S.-Saudi relationship has transformed, really, and not in a positive way. It's really soured. It's really frosted over. People should be aware that U.S. relations with Saudi since the Second World War, since the famous Bitter Lake meeting between, uh, I believe, Eisenhower and the um, the king of Saudi Arabia at the time, since that meeting, the U.S. relation with Saudi has been in- incredibly privileged and preferential on both sides. I mean, we Britons often talk about having a special relationship with the US, but it's nowhere near as special as the relationship that the US has had with the Saudis. It's really been very close indeed. Uh, We've seen over recent years, uh, for several reasons that I I think we shouldn't go into now, but uh, that relationship has soured. And, And to the extent we're here, we find out that Biden publicly and Mohammed bin Salman privately were threatening each other with imposing sanctions and and, and essentially waging economic war on each other because relations had broken down to that extent. You've got Biden promising to impose consequence on Saudi for not doing something that he wanted. And in return, you have MBS saying that he would completely tear up the existing relationship and impose significant economic costs on America if they dared go down that route. It's really quite an extraordinary shift in relations. And of course, Saudi Arabia is one of the keystone states in what has been traditionally one of the areas of prime US strategic interest. And uh, we are indeed seeing the Chinese become increasingly important now. And as I say, we now have this this data point which shows just how far uh, relations had fallen. I think that's a really good summary of it. I I wouldn't phrase it so passively. I'd say that this is an absolute disaster. I mean, somebody has really screwed up here. Um, How do you destroy a relationship in such a short period of time that's been so important and so solid for so long? I mean, you know, you you say the Bitter Lake um, meeting with Eisenhower. I mean, this is really the beginning of American, you know, unipolar or not unipolar but american global influence i mean saudi's been a partner since then and prior to that they were quite friendly with britain as far as i understand it so to do such damage to this relationship is really kind of remarkable um i think we've discussed it on the podcast before a lot of it a lot of it has to do with moralizing um the Khashoggi death and so on um a lot of a lot of this seems to me to have been preventable. Not all of it. Not all of it. The 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 changing nature of the world has allowed Saudi Arabia to pick and choose. It now has other options, and that's a big component. And that was always going to make the relationship more difficult. But a great deal of this seems to me to have been choices, bad choices, and um, we're paying for it with higher oil prices. Frankly, we may now go into a recession with China's economy humming along and oil prices relatively high and Saudi Arabia won't be able to help us out in that. Now, I'm not saying they won't fall. They probably will fall, but they won't fall to a normal recession level. And that'll be a very pa- pa- painful uh, uh, thing for the for the West to deal with if and when we go into a recession. What was really interesting and kind of what spoke volumes to me was um, I read the Washington Post article in full. It was a long article on the leaks. And what really stood out was it didn't mention Iran at all. It didn't. It didn't mention the biggest, you know, the elephant in the room, which is that Saudi Arabia and Iran are improving relations. And so I, I looked up a few other uh, uh, media, and South China Morning Press is actually quite good for diplomatic stuff, and they were reporting the Blinken visit there 
And they highlighted that Anthony Blinken went and visited Saudi Arabia on the same day as the Iranian embassy was being opened. And I just thought to myself, the Washington Post is the kind of beltway newspaper. It's what all the all the kind of Washington DC people read. And if they read their big, you know, long weekend read, maybe it wasn't on the weekend, but probably people like me were reading it over the weekend. If they're reading that on Saudi Arabia, they're not even being informed of one of the most important aspects of this entire thing, which is the burgeoning relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And look, the the clearly, it, and it was clearly said in the Washington Post piece, the Biden administration have taken their eyes off Saudi Arabia. They, for whatever reason, I don't fully understand it. I think some of it might be ideological. I hate to be that guy that blames everything on the quote unquote woke, but I think there might be some of that here within the Biden administration. But for what, whatever reason, they've taken their eyes off the Saudi, Saudi Arabian relationship. Well, is that really surprising when, if I'm reading the Washington Post, I don't even understand that Saudi Arabia, my core ally in the region, or one of my core allies in the region, is making friends with Iran, my core enemy in the region. Like, if I don't even understand that, if I'm the average person reading Washington Post, is it really surprising that people are taking their eyes off this region? It's very, very strange. I, I, I came away from that article and I just thought, that's bizarre. And it was long and detailed and it went into all this stuff about oil price dynamics. It was perfectly happy to talk about the Saudis siding with Russia on the OPEC stuff, but no mention of Iran. I don't think they even mentioned Iran in the paper. And yet, as I say, at the same time, Blinken is over there quite consciously as the Iranian embassy reopens. It's really crazy stuff. Yeah, it is. It's, And I think the other thing that people underestimate in the West certainly in America, because Saudi Arabia is not considered a great power in the traditional sense of the word, and because it's been such a close US ally for so long, I don't think that people quite grasp how important Saudi Arabia has been for the US economy and US standing in the world. Okay, So, for instance, um, because the US you know, was essentially the, the – the kind of the 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 guarantor of uh, of Saudi security, and because it had such close um, such close relations, the the vast quantities of money that the Saudis uh, made from oil were always recycled back into the U.S. financial system. This held interest rates down, and it helped cover some of the U.S.'s huge current account deficit. Not only that, but the Saudi Arabians spend, I mean, they don't necessarily have a formidable military, but they spend huge amounts on military armaments and spend huge amounts specifically from the West, in, in, in essence, helping to close that current account in a, another way, instead of just recycling the money flows back into the financial system in Wall Street and the city of London. They also buy lots of armaments from people like BAE and uh, Lockheed and Boeing and Raytheon. They're huge arms purchases. They spend a lot of money on the military every year. But Saudi was also the swing producer within OPEC. If OPEC, which is the, the cartel that seeks to maintain oil prices at a sustainably high level by raising and lowering their production... The, the Saudis were essentially 
the country that could make that happen because they you know have huge oil fields in the uh, southeast of the country because of that they were able to lower or raise their production and make these oil cuts or uh, oil increases work and and because of the strong relations that the US had with Saudi that 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 Washington had with Riyadh the U.S. had some influence over that. It's you know it's not the first time that they've asked the Saudis, for instance, to increase oil production just before a midterm election. Okay, so for all of these reasons, Saudis have had an outsized influence relative to their geostrategic power in U.S. power and the U.S. economy, and suddenly they've decided, as you say, I think for ideological reasons, I think because. Uh, you know, liberals found the murder of uh, Khashoggi unconscionable, and they they couldn't then bring themselves to maintain this good relationship with Saudi Arabia. Obviously, Saudi Arabia is a, a Muslim country and a deeply conservative uh, country, and couldn't bear that either. Now, one of the Bitter Lake agreements, of course, was that the Americans promised never to interfere with the Saudi religion and, 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 and the nature of the Saudi social structure, okay? Now, the Americans are discarding that. They're discarding their unwillingness to deal with the way things work in Saudi Arabia or, or their promise not to interfere. And they're doing it at just the time where China is really becoming the most important customer for Middle Eastern hydrocarbons, when China is finding a, 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 an increased diplomatic heft and an increased ability to influence events in the world. So the US has drawn down just at that moment. And of course, this has given the Saudis an option to say, well, look, if, if you're going to start kind of acting in a, in, in a less than friendly manner, then we've got another option. We can go off and, and deal with the Chinese. And of course, the result of that is a detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This was one of the key ways that uh, Washington kept the region in, in, in tension and in balance. Uh, now you have the Saudis also making nice with Assad, and things are shifting very swiftly against the Americans. As you say, this isn't being reported at all. It's very strange to me, but it's, it's something I hope that at least multipolarity listeners can understand a little bit more. We are fresh from a huge victory. 